Curdy, are you ready to start today's podcast? Sure, Sally. Let's go. Space Croutons! Space Croutons Season 3.14 Space Croutons Season 3.14 Join us for a tale of the circumference of any circle to the diameter of that circle, regardless of the circle size, this ratio will always equal pi. That's right, friends. It's time once again for Space Croutons, one of the interweb's premier sci-fi storytelling podcasts. I'm your host, Curdy Clamberwood, and I'm joined in the back of our mobile sound studio we call Van Helsing by the ablest AI I know, Sally. Welcome to today's intergalactic salad space croutonians. We cannot wait to show you what's on the menu. It sounds like you're working as a short order cook, Sally. It is an option, Cordy. Would you like fries with that? Well, that all depends. What's today's blue plate special? Curdy, we have received a letter addressed to the Space Croutons audience with a rather unsavory flavor. Well, how did we get a letter? We don't have a post office box or a physical address being in Van Helsing the way we are. It came to the reception desk at the Roach Hotel. Vera scanned it and sent it to me via the portal stream. I think you should read it, Cordy. The letter is rather unusual in nature. What do you mean by unusual? I'm getting an ominous feeling already. Are we talking ghost story unusual here, or personal disaster in the realm of financial ruin unusual? It appears to be a letter from someone confessing to being a very prolific serial killer. The letter says to broadcast it, or our friends and compatriots may become the killer's next victims. Just hold on a minute. That can't be right. Who in any of the known worlds would willingly admit to being a serial killer of any kind? And then to warn us that we could be next? Well, that would just put everyone on guard. Something's wrong here, Sally. Put the letter up on the monitor so I can read it, please. Hmm, I don't know if we should share this letter with the Space Croutons folks. It's really not our kind of thing. It's very distasteful, distressing, and generally unsettling. I understand what you mean. It is something of an ethical dilemma for humanoids. 
Do we give the killer the exposure and notoriety they're seeking by sharing the letter with the public or withhold the letter and destroy the public trust if they ever learn that we had a warning and failed to share it? Does the public really have a right to know? Do we really have a viable choice? If we don't broadcast this letter then some of our friends may be sacrificed. Do we really want to see Aiden, Vera, Lucy, Dad or Seaver harmed? Our listeners could be targeted as well. Well, that's exactly my concern. How can we take the chance? Broadcasting this letter is no guarantee that this person will still not target our friends and listeners. You can't trust someone to be truthful when it's clear there's no regard for human life and the makeup of their entity. Let's play a commercial while I consider whether this letter should be shared with our listeners or consigned to the rubbish bin. Very well. Our commercial today comes from one of our very familiar sponsors, Beckett Industries. Does your space portal need some maintenance? Has something got a little caca in the programming of your portal? We here at Beckett Industries have decades of experience in traveling through space and time. And, more importantly, we are experienced in regulating and repairing space and time travel machinery. You can trust us to keep your portal in perfect working order at all times. Just sign up for one of our monthly portal subscriptions and your travel troubles are a thing of the past. With our low monthly service fee of $88.88, you will have the peace of mind that comes with knowing you will never be trapped in time or lost in space with no way to get home. Our technicians will keep your portal active and working properly. We are on time, every time, or you don't pay a dime. You can travel with peace of mind when your portal is maintained by Beckett Industries. Beckett Industries, striving to serve all of your time travel needs. Happy travels. Okay. During the commercial, I consulted with our non-existent legal department of Gilbert, Sullivan, and Hart and came to the conclusion that I must share this missive with the Space Crutonians. They are the most savvy people on any planet or plane of existence, and if anyone can stop this fiendish entity, I'd put my money on them. But I will offer this warning. Parents should not allow their children to listen to this episode, and those sensitive to violence may want to miss the episode as well. I sincerely hope we're doing the right thing here, Sally. As my old dad used to say, there's no fool like the fool you're being right now, so quit fooling around and make a decision already. I have heard it said that history will judge us. So if we are not going to be judged until many years have passed, my recommendation is to go for it. Well, all right then. I guess we're going to do this. <clears throat> Greetings, Space Croutons listeners. I am trusting that Curdy will ensure that you hear this letter. He is such a do-gooder. He will not be able to resist trying to catch me. After hundreds of years, it seems that I will never be apprehended. No one has been able to stop me yet. Many have never even suspected me. It has been very difficult for me to watch my work be attributed to people less than worthy of the accolades in some cases, and in other instances not to be recognized as noteworthy at all. I have decided that now is the time for the world to know of my abilities. After all, I am the GOAT. I should be known recognized, even feared on a grander scale than ever thought possible until recently. 
Every world, every dimension within the multiverse should know my name and should quake with fear when it is mentioned. It is not a surprise that I'm reaching out to all of the space Crutonians. What is a podcast, if not a modern-day letter of sorts? Knowing that you have heard my story and may try to find me and uncover who I am only makes my work more delicious for me. I will give you a sporting chance by giving you a brief history of my many accomplishments. After all, you should be fully apprised about me so you can make an informed decision about your participation in this little challenge. First things first, I know when anyone mentions the words serial killer, the mind readily goes to Jack the Ripper. For those who may wonder if I was Jack the Ripper in 1888, London, England, please stop. He garnered so much fame, and for what? Five murders of Whitechapel tarts? His fame is completely undeserved. No, I never inhabited the Ripper's body. I don't enjoy cold weather and try to stay away from the chillier climes, except for short forays during the warmer months. I must say that I did copy an idea from him in my letter writing to the authorities, which I have done in many of my different forms. In truth, I was living in New Zealand during the 1880s as Minnie Dean. Possibly you have heard of the Ballad of Minnie Dean? They only found three of my victims there. I could have worked longer in that incarnation had it not been for the very observant fellow at the train station who made note of the pieces of baggage I was carrying. At any rate, children were too easy. Not enough of a challenge for me. So I moved on. For years, my work was completely unnoticed. The past was so full of violence, it was almost no effort at all to get rid of anyone who ridiculed, annoyed, or even looked askance at me. I won't even bother to recount the many lives that were lost to my rage. The ones that gall me the most are the instances where my work was attributed to someone else. This happened on August 4, 1892. It was one of my more bloody killings with very little finesse. Do you remember the Lizzie Borden case? Of course you do. Everyone thinks Lizzie killed both of her parents. She even gets a silly little song to commemorate her deeds. But she was a clueless wonder. It was me. I did it. What do I get? A footnote in the annals of history as Lizzie's possible accomplice, the maid Bridget Sullivan. After the Borden's deaths, I decided to never use an axe as a murder weapon again. This is part of my genius. I do not follow some mindless ritualistic patterns to kill. I am more spontaneous, much more creative than that. I lived for years in Milton, Florida as Martha Beck. The swamps around Blackwater River became home to some of my victims. Their remains are still among the missing, their names lost to history. In this embodiment, my first job was as an undertaker's assistant. 
I then went to nursing school, but I had trouble finding a job in the field of nursing. Finally, I was hired by the Pensacola Hospital. That position lasted until someone got suspicious about the high rate of decline of patients on my floor. So I decided to head to California. It was called the land of opportunity at the time, and I quickly found a job on the army base at Camp Cook. I was working in a hospital again. It was while at Camp Cook that I ran into Elizabeth Short. She applied for a job in the commissary on base. She was young and beautiful, but she was not very nice to me. They say pretty is as pretty does. She taunted me about my weight, even laughed at me. When I was living as Martha, I was not very slim, but I got the last laugh in January of 1947. I got the last laugh, not only on her, but on the police who tried to solve her murder. They sensationalized the case, calling Elizabeth the Black Dahlia because she loved to wear black, gauzy clothing, and they thought she was beautiful. The authorities made much of the fact that she was neatly severed in half at the waist. I called that cutting her down to size, but no one else saw the humor in it. The Hollywood Police Department questioned the students at a nearby medical college, but they never thought of someone like me, someone with the nurse training. My work as an undertaker's assistant helped me to know where and how to dispose of the blood. I did send letters to the police, but that did not help them to find me. Elizabeth's death was an unsolved murder until now. On my travels to California, I stayed for three months in the Texarkana area. It was the spring of 1946, and I became known there as the Phantom Killer. I targeted couples in order to vent my anger. How dare they flaunt their passion in lover's lane? It was so silly of those teenagers to try to bait me. I am more careful and methodical than to fall for such a transparent trick. But they learned their lesson. The town became so anxious, the residents all but stopped going out after dark. The fear was palpable. A living thing that ensnared the imaginations of all those who lived in the area. This incident was even fictionalized as a movie. But of course, the film depicted the killer as a male. It suited my purposes at the time. People so seldom attribute such acts to a woman, especially a woman with two small children. Being a mother was a perfect cover for that place and time. It was a built-in disguise because it left me completely unsuspected by the authorities. I left California to follow Raymond Fernandez, whom I had met while working at the Army Hospital. He was traveling through California when his head injury from World War II caused him to collapse. The Veterans Hospital had no room at the time, and they shunted Raymond over to us. What a lucky coincidence for both of us. Once I joined up with Raymond Fernandez, I left those little brats of mine behind. The Salvation Army was more than happy to take the kids. I thought I was in love with Raymond. 
I guess I was in love for a while, but I never made that mistake again. I followed Raymond to New York City, where we killed more than 20 people. I would pretend to be his sister to make the women we killed more comfortable about coming inside our home. They were all looking for love, and Raymond knew how to sweet-talk them. I was barely noticed after the initial introduction. Like I said, people seldom think that females are to be feared. Raymond and I became known as the Lonely Hearts Killers. Raymond got sloppy, causing us to be caught, and I had to leave Martha's body before her execution in 1951. In 1968, I returned to California and killed many more people. I gave myself the name The Zodiac Killer. I even sent ciphers and made calls to help the police to catch me. I am justifiably proud that one of these ciphers was not solved until 2002. Here again, I targeted young people in cars. Killing people is so much fun for me. These killings, two at a time, even more exhilarating. People act in much more unexpected ways than wildlife. It makes the hunt more thrilling. Beginning in the 1980s, I had trouble with another type of traveler. He was getting in my way and trying to stop me from my destiny. Sam began trying to undo my work and he was very unpredictable. Like me, he could appear as a woman or a man. He had a source of knowledge that I could not match. Luckily for me, I discovered the portals and began using them in the 1980s. I traveled to other planets and to other dimensions. The residents on Quill were completely unsuspecting of me. To this day, they have no idea the extent of my work on their planet. I orchestrated killings through the use of their mass transit system. Dandy's people are very trusting. The security on Quell is laughable, so I took advantage of it. The governmental authorities were extremely helpful in covering up my deeds. They were worried the people would panic. Because of the misguided attempts of the Quellians, I was able to work more freely and without interference. Now that I have discovered the Space Croutons podcast, I know the names of your friends, Curdy. I know the names of those who are helping you. Enjoy your safety and your freedom for now. Nothing is guaranteed in this life. Nothing is permanent. Catch me if you dare to. Well, that's the whole thing. It's not signed. I hope we're doing the right thing by putting this out there. Regrets bear no fruit and are unproductive. You make a decision. You live with the consequences, whatever they are. Well, as my dad used to say, if you live long enough, you'll have a boatload of regrets, but I would just rather have a boat. Well, he never did get that boat. Anyway, Sally, you and I can finish our discussion about regrets and consequences once today's episode is in the can. Right now, it's time to say goodbye. Faithful listeners, please be mindful, watch out for yourselves and your loved ones, keep on the sunny side because we all know what happens if you go to the dark side, and keep peace in your heart until our next story time. So long. If you want to join in, I might have to have some hints. 
easy, but very light and breezy. I love it supersonic, but very planetonic. Space Crouton Season 3.14. Come on! Space Crouton Season 3.14. Again! Space Crouton Season 3.14. Space Croutons is a work of original fiction. Similarities to persons, situations, or events, real or fictional, is coincidental and unintentional. Created and written by Jerry, Jace, John, Della, and Jeff Goodson. Episode story by Della. Original music by Della, Jeff, John, and Jerry. Production by Della, James, and Jeff. Featuring the voice talents of James Jared Morrow, Della, Jeff, and Sally. Entire work, copyright 2022 by Jeff, John, Jerry, Della, and Jace Goodson. This has been a Goodwitch Audio Production.